totes, elotes, dog. Thanks, Noob Noob. This guy gets it. Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Whoa, Rick, check this guy out. He's really, he's got a lot going on for him. Silence, Morty. Hey, everybody, this is your good friend, Dr. David Proden from down here in the nostalgic, storied North Star Recording Studio where it is a very comfortable 67 degrees. Today's episode is number 136 here of the Safety Doc Podcast, Cognitive Offloading, How the Internet is Increasingly Taking Over Human Memory. So a few things right off the bat here. I obviously have a microphone in front of me, and in a little bit further in front of me is my main monitor where I'm watching as I'm recording. On the left are my show notes. On the right is an open web browser. So as you see the safety doc, kind of looking around. I'm not checking out to see if anyone's sneaking up on me. I'm just doing what I have to do to make this one of the best safety shows available in this price range on the Internet. Ah, School of Airs, Rethinking School Safety in America. My book, all right, can buy it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and places that sell books. 200 pages, it's hard copy. It's really a well-made book. I mean, this is something that's going to be very stout in your bookshelf, on your coffee table. Um, you could definitely put something on this. It's very well finished. It's going to stand up. It's not going to leave a stain. It's very good. Um, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America. The first chapter, How Thinking About a Bagel Can Get You Through the Worst Day of Your Life. It's really a book that gets into the deep facets of navigating chaos. We've had so much of that right now with the coronavirus. This book is a godsend. It's a wonderful resource. Again, $30, um, Barnes & Noble, Amazon can get it from less. Kindle, it's also at many libraries all across the country. School of Errors. Rethinking School Safety in America. Please subscribe to this channel and hit like for this show. We do have 136 episodes, all released in video on YouTube, also on Podbean and audio, Apple Podcasts. And then if you go to safetyphd.com, that's my website. You'll find blog posts for all 136 episodes. Blog posts are about 600 words or about a page and a half. So you can access those. Nothing there that I'm trying to, to sell you. I'm not having you subscribe to anything. The content is all there for you for free. Um, it's really actually a terrific resource. So again, the Safety Doc Podcast, 136 episodes. And we've had 40 or 50 episodes with guests on. Um, we'll have more guests coming on the show. But today is a show. It's just me solo down here in the North Star recording studio. This one will be one hour. Um, to correspond with my time on the 405media.com, the 405media.com out of Los Angeles, California, syndicating the Safety Doc podcast. Check it out, 2 p.m. PST daily, the 405media.com. If you're watching this video, that's the big sign behind me. 
So cognitive offloading. Cognitive offloading is, is taking information and storing it out in the environment. Okay, It's basically taking the hard drive of your brain and saying, I don't have to memorize this. I don't have to know every step. I'm going to put this out into the environment in a form of a checklist or something like that. So all of us do it. Um, some of us do it more effectively than others, but the internet has made it very easy to cognitively offload things. Basically saying, we're just going to do a search and we'll find the information. There's good to that, and there's also bad to that. So we're going to cover both of those things. You are an intelligent um, consumer of information. You're following the Safety Doc podcast. A lot of you um, have followed several of the shows. So when you start to use this stuff, when, when you apply it into everyday life, people around you notice. They're like, hey, you're doing face validity. You're um, also you know, exercising cognitive offloading. You're using terms like I observed instead of I think. And these are all things that just elevate you. That's what we're all about here in school and community safety, but so many other aspects of just elevating yourself. And people, again, notice that. And I think they try to model their behaviors after what you are doing. So um, it's, a, it's a good thing. It's a very good thing here for the Safety Doc podcast. Some partners. Okay, we already talked about the405media.com out of Los Angeles, California. You might have seen something new here at the start of the show if you're watching video, and that is Rooftop Life Raft. Rooftop Life Raft, urban life-saving systems. So um, you can find this on the internet. I'll have more. I have some little video clips that, that they're putting out for promotion. Um, but let me tell you about Rooftop uh, Life Raft. So these are... Uh, it's, a, it's a system developed for areas which um, could be subjected to substantial flooding, um, such as coastal areas, where you would then be able to have a, a life raft deployed from your house, from an elevated position into the water. You'd be safely able to uh, leave the area. So um, these guys are, are, are really tremendous. The research, uh, the entrepreneur um, uh, attitude of, of, of solving this problem, of putting it putting it together. Plus, they're expanding out into other uh, life-saving systems, especially um, in flood-type situations. So they reached out to me a while back. I had done some coverage on hurricanes, you know, interviewing Katie Pichon, um, also getting information about, you know, the hurricanes that hit the Bahamas. And, you know, there, there's a cross point of similarity uh, between those Broadcast also what I wrote about in um, systems will develop urban or hurricane rescues and things like that in School of Airs and what Rooftop Life Raft does. So anyway, it's exciting because again I I'm I, I always love to see people um, take the creative spirit to solve problems and and with, with brilliant solutions. So again, Rooftop Life Raft Life Raft some at the beginning you can check it out online. They're going to have more coming out soon, videos to actually show you what's going on. I've seen some of these things. This is really tremendous how they've engineered um, this stuff in a small amount of space to deploy and then get you out of there and keep you safe. Face validity. Okay, face validity. Every show now we talk about face validity. What is face validity? It is where you authentically go out into your environment and observe what is going on. So you can say, I observe versus I think. When people say, I think, they get a lot of that from the media. I think this is happening. I think whatever. I think because of whatever I watched tonight on the news or I went to channel 3000, whatever. No, 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 no. That's a bias, right? There's substantial bias in that. 
Um, and your context or situation is you observe. What do you authentically observe when you're walking out in your environment, when you're going to these places? What do you observe when you're at the stores, when you're going to the clinic? What's what's happening? So um, a few things uh, for face validity is, you know, our banks, our lobbies, and the banks are opening up. So that's happening in my bank. Got notified, lobbies opening up. Um, at the Walmart entrance, that's been significantly scaled back. They had, you know, at least you know, like a 75-foot barricade that you had to like walk past and around and then stay six feet apart coming in. That's been scaled down quite a bit. Um, so those are the types of things that I'm that I'm witnessing right now. I'm observing, right? I'm observing. More vehicle traffic, certainly, substantially more uh, vehicle traffic. Our hospital are... Our local hospital has removed the signs, uh, which I took some photos of because I'm intending to write a second book um, about the velocity of information and face validity, but I took pictures of the signs that they had up in the parking lot and then leading up to this entrance for respiratory care for coronavirus. Uh, the signs are gone, um, so you can tell that they're, they're scaling back on that. Um, so, yeah, so a... It, that's face validity. Again, it's where you can say I observed um, instead of I think. It's just more powerful to say I observed. This is where people will start to recognize it. They'll be like, hey, you know, I, I noticed that that Atham. I, I noticed that that Vince and, uh, you know, and notice what it, they're, they're saying I observed. And I, they've said it a few times now. And they're saying, OK, that's resonating with me. Yeah, if you observe it, it's more grounded. Right? It's more authentic. And you have your face validity network, which I have. I have my network. I check in with people all over. Brighton, Bowden in uh, the Bronx in New York. What is happening? And, you know, the, I trust when Brian goes out and does his face validity check, um, the information he's sharing back with me. Our good friend Chuck Mack, who's been on the show at a University of Pitt Med. Chuck Mack telling me what's happening in Pittsburgh. So just some things that I've observed. Um that I, that I shared. Now, here's some other things, too, is, you know, Wisconsin recently, um, the Supreme Court in Wisconsin overturned our governor's stay, safer at home order. And uh, so our governor said now Wisconsin is is the Wild West. All right. Something to that nature. But Wild West was in that statement. Um, I don't I don't like that. Um, I don't like that statement. That's hyperbole. It's meant to scare people. It's meant to get people confused, to think that from county to county, city to city, it's going to vary uh, widely across our state, really that it's going to uh, be pandemonium, chaos, disorganized. And that's not the case at all. That is not how things are happening in Wisconsin. It's pretty typical to how things were before coronavirus. Um, and, you know, some some counties still have wear a mask, do social distancing, Um they're limiting their restaurants uh, or they're not opening, things like that. Others, it, you know, things are opening up. But to think that, you know, as soon as I cross the county line, I'm into something that's totally unknown and unpredictable. It's just not accurate. So I don't care for the hyperbole that comes out of our governor's office. I'm just flat up. I don't like it. I don't care for it. Um, it's I think it's very unsettling to people to have things like that said. Like this is the Wild West. It's not. We've always we've had different regulations from um, county to county before, in, in city to city, you know, on, on different things. So, but yeah, I think we're we're coming out of this safer at home and resuming more into what it was beforehand, just as 
my face validity observation. Um, Major League Baseball. So I've been reading the Major League Baseball uh, requirements for restarting the league. And I think it's a 69-page proposal, which would need to be ratified by the players' union. Um, but to me, that's uh, it contains a lot of security theatrics. For example, the players can't take showers after the game. Um, you have to wear masks in dugouts and, you know, goes on to a number of these things. But, you know, you, you, I'm looking at this and I'm, I'm reading through this, right? I'm thinking, well, you know, if you're a catcher in baseball, you're always going to be in close proximity to an umpire and to a batter, like throughout the entire game. So should a catcher wear a face mask under their mask, like an N95 under their their protective, you know, mask? But um I, I don't know. I don't know where all of this stuff will go. I saw Disney now has come out with a very blunt statement saying when we reopen the parks, um, there might be requirements, mask or, you know, whatever, social distancing. Uh, but, you know, you take the risk of being here. You take the risk of contracting uh, coronavirus, other things. I remember when we were at Disney in 2017 and there were numerous signs up along the waterways saying, Stay, you know, just don't come down by the waterway because of alligators and snakes. <laughs> so, yeah, it, I took pictures of those. Actually, I have a few of them. Um, not alligators and snakes, but, you know, just it was subtle, but it was there. Like, definitely. Um, and I think that approach, and we're going to see more of maybe a national localized approach to of, of saying there is inherent risk to attending a baseball game or your kids high school football game or volleyball game or whatever if you're going to be in the stands and if you if you don't do that if you don't put it out there with some inherent risk and then also have some um, uh, protection on that from liability you're just not going to have those things restart I mean we'll never have people in the stands again if we don't say hey there's risk to this um, so take these these precautions and but uh, so I am I'm gl I'm glad to see the position that Disney has taken. And, you know, I would say we'll probably start seeing this stuff on other things. You know, if you go to a movie, maybe on the back of the ticket, it's going to say, you know, you assume all risk for coming into a theater. Maybe like above where you get your tickets, there's going to be something that says, you know, you assume all risk of, you know, virus or whatever. The theater adheres to these processes of, you know, cleanliness and, and whatever but of course being in proximity and whatever with other people this is a risk that you're taking um, eventually i think those things will fade out after maybe a year or two but if we don't come back with a hard line statement on those types of things of saying like a disney there's some risk we're never going to restart um, disney major league baseball nba at least where we have people in the stands so um hey a shout out to some of the libraries that have my book Loyola University in Chicago, Illinois, the Cudahy Lewis Library. Thank you very much. St. Catherine University in St. Paul, Minnesota. A shout out to our good friends at St. Catherine. You made a wise choice. Southeastern Community College in West Burlington, Iowa. You can always count on Southeastern College to provide their patrons with some of the best books out there. Anico, or Anica County Library in Blaine, Minnesota. Blaine, Minnesota. You want to read the safety doc? His uh, work. You want to you want to check out School of Airs? Check into the Anica County Library in Blaine, Minnesota. Iowa State University Parks Library in our place, Ames, Iowa. 
It's not only a vacation hotspot, it also has a pretty awesome library with my book. And finally, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in Urbana, Illinois, in the United States. Just a few of the places where you can find the Safety Docs book, School of Airs, Rethinking School Safety in America. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. So cognitive offloading, yeah, let's let's get into it. Cognitive offloading is anything you do to reduce the cognitive demands of a task, basically to make it take up less space in your brain. So this becomes easier to think about if we think about our brains as hard drives, and this is our internal hard drive, or we can access stuff that's over here on external hard drive or the cloud or whatever, okay? That's how we got to think of it. So before the internet, like a lot of this had to be right up here. Some of it was always in flip charts and things like that, but a lot of things had to be right up here. But now it's like, yeah, no, you know, we don't need to put up as much up here. Um, Like, I don't, I don't need to know all state capitals, right? Which I remember in fifth grade, I, I, our, our teacher required us to memorize the fifty capitals, the state capitals, and we, we had a test um, on it. And uh, it was it was a lot of work. You know, I had to do flashcards and things like that. And, you know, at least for me, I guess. But And I think I got one wrong, maybe two, which is still pretty good. But um, but I remember this of this stressful thing as a fifth grader, like trying to remember all the state capitals. And looking back, I'm like, that's pretty useless. <laughs> like, what is it outside of a trivia thing um, to know what the capital of whatever it is? Um, you know, right now, of course, and for a long time, we can just access that information, knowing how to access, get the answer to that information. Yeah. You want to know the state capital of Virginia? All right. Give me, yeah, give me 30 seconds and I'll have it for you. Um, what does it mean to me? Not a hell of a lot. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's just one of those those things. And this is too where schools, you can really ask the question of, what should we be teaching kids? What should we we be expecting kids to remember versus just saying, now you'll always be able to find that information if you ever really need it. Remember the whole thing with calculators back in the day? I went through that where, oh, you know, you're never going to have a calculator at your disposal, so you're going to have to know how to do these calculations and all of these things. And yeah, I, I get part of that, but um, we pretty much always have a calculator at our disposal, right? Always. Um, it's crazy. I'm not going to be sitting out in the forest, you know, trying to write in the dirt to figure out the square root of something as I'm building my shelter. I just don't see that happening. Uh, what are some examples of cognitive offloading? So, hey, 
Every fall, every fall, right? Like I have to winterize the lawnmower, get to the end of October. And what I did is instead of trying to memorize all of the steps that go with that, I put together a checklist. I hand wrote a checklist. Um, and, and then I put that in a drawer in my garage that is right above where the lawnmower is. And then I just pull that out and I'm like, boom, boom, boom. Okay, I know what to go through and I'm making sure I'm not overlooking one or two steps. I don't have to put that into memory because I'm only doing it once a year. It doesn't need to take up space here in the safety dock, gray matter, hard drive. So flip chart for what to do during a crisis. This is offloading for school safety, right? Or for any safety, you know, crisis event happens, go to the, go to the flip chart if there's a tornado there's a fire, if there's an active shooter, if there's a bomb threat, whatever. Um, now, there's good and bad to that, okay? Um, people are very panicked. That can help uh, restore them into a line of thinking, oh, okay, here's what I have to, to do. But also, once you start to get rote in things like that, like here are the nine steps, usually once you get to step two or three, it's not matching the authentic disaster that's happening. I wrote about that in School of Errors. So, these, these things such as flip charts, offloading of just saying, yeah, I'll go to the flip chart if I need it. Well, if you're not familiar with that, like if you haven't practiced that and you just think suddenly that knowledge from the flip chart will be uploaded to you and you'll know what to do, that's really a stretch. It's probably not going to work that way. Here's something um, pretty neat for cognitive offloading that is very effective. So AED, the defibrillator devices uh, found throughout many uh, public places now. But so, you know, somebody has a heart attack, you grab an AED and I've seen the AED demonstrations as a school administrator. So what happens is the AED starts to, to, to have, you know, text to speech. It's, it's going through uh, vocalizing. Um, this is what you need to do. You need to take this here. It's all color coded. Take, take the red line, take the yellow line, you know, put this patch on, put this patch here. And these images are coming up on the display. It's letting you know if you've done it right or not. It's, it's guiding you through, again, in, in these vocalized and visual directions. So you, so you don't have to remember how to use an AED, right? You have to know how to access. You have to remember where the AED is and that this is a situation that warrants an AED. But once you grab the AED and open up the case, whoa, the AED itself um, kind of steps you, steps you through how to use it. So that's a way of cognitive offloading that's been built into the device. Okay, that's a good thing. Um, other things, Google Maps stored in your phone. So if you download maps, um, the Fukushima uh, nuclear disaster in, was it, 2011 in Japan. Uh, Google engineer actually used maps or downloaded it to his phone. The, the wireless network at that time had been significantly disrupted. It was the, the earthquake and then, of course, the, the nuclear uh, disaster at Fukushima, um, but he used Google Maps on his phone to navigate his way home. He was using the maps and then comparing them also with what he was seeing for landmarks um, around him, but basically that got him home. So again, he didn't have to memorize all of these maps and all of this this path and this this network of you know roads and systems in an area that he wasn't quite familiar with. Um, he needed to be able to access the map. Um, something else, that is a, a, something to do with cognitive offloading. That is setting an alarm for a meeting. So I have a meeting Thursday night at 7 o'clock. I set an alarm on Google. I'll be able to um, get reminded. That's called prospective PRO, prospective memory. 
Um, that's also something with cognitive offloading. Getting really intense in our schedules and just putting things in our schedule and kind of letting, you know, letting that give give us reminders throughout the day. Um, I I really do a thorough job um, with that. I I get a lot of reminders um, throughout the day. Whoa, wait for this. Whoa, whoa, kind of like use the the fire uh, effect right there, just for the fun of it, right? But I I use a lot of reminders um, throughout my my week. I'll put in my my calendar. Um, that helps me a lot. Cognitive offload, so I don't have to to remember. Um, I, I don't have to remember those things. Per dun, 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 per researcher, Dr. Benjamin Storm. Okay, he said, hey, memory is changing. Our research shows that as we use the internet to support and extend our memory, we become more reliant on it. So that's what this show is about, using the internet. Um, so whereas we might have tried to recall something on our own, our own minds, our own memory here, trying to remember it, we just say, I'm not even going to bother. I'm just going to uh, go to the internet and do a search. As more information becomes available by smart smartphones and other devices, we become progressively more reliant on it during our daily lives, going to the internet. So, and there's some significant advantage to that, um, that we have that external hard drive, but there are some issues with that too. Like how valid is that information that we're getting? And it's one thing if I'm going to, you know, check out a few videos on how to change the headlight on my Buick. Okay, that's useful information for me. I don't have to do it a lot. Like I don't have to commit it to memory. I can go back and I can, you know, watch a couple videos of people that have done that. Um, I'm trying to get information on, you know, coronavirus or, or something like that. Um, anything health related, of course, going to the internet is a huge, is a huge gamble. It's a big roll of the dice on what kind of information you're going to get back. How valid is it? How well does it even relate to you and your environment? So yeah, pretty crazy stuff. So Check this out. 30% of participants who previously consulted the internet failed, okay, failed to even attempt to answer a single simple question from memory. So instead of me asking you, hey, what's the capital of Nevada? Instead of, you know, you pause and you're trying to think about, it, you're like, yeah, forget it. I'll just go to the internet. What what are some foods that you should should eat before, you know, biking that help you out? Instead of thinking about it, you say, I don't know, I'll just go to the internet. I'll, I'll find, I'll type in biking plus healthy foods plus like routine or whatever. So, you know, it's this thing where people are, are outsourcing to the internet. And they assume, I mean, when we think of the internet, we think of the internet as something that is highly curated and, and has editors go through it. <laughs> You know, like my book, several proofs, several editors before it actually comes out onto the internet. And we just know that's not accurate. So people who are are more and more dependent upon their information from the internet, especially news sources, um, their local news, uh, CNN, whatever, it's, it's, it's just crazy. It's just not reliable information. But again, we have this culture where people look externally for their answers, um, on Facebook, you know, how many likes does something have? And that's going to determine, you know, whether or not I go with it. Hey, should I wear this shirt or should I wear this shirt? Let me know. Those types of things. I think those are kind of crazy anyway. But um, we trust in the, the results that we get. And again, on the Internet, we trust that information has been vetted. It's been validated. And uh, oftentimes it's not. And you have to be very careful in what you're obtaining. I obtain a lot of stuff from research sites like JURN, J-U-R-N.org. 
um, and I can find many research articles. Well, I know those articles are authentic. Authentic. I can validate that. I can look at their sample sizes and things like that, research studies, and make decisions based upon that. But if I'm just going to a news article, you know, if, I, if I'm just typing in something and finding it from, you know, my local news, Channel 3000 or, you know, CNN or something like that, um, it's usually significantly biased and just doesn't have the depth. Um, so we have to be very careful because so many people, again, are going out to get information, very easy kind of clickbait information off of Internet sites. And it's not research has not curated what they're finding. That stuff does exist you know, on the internet, but you have to look for it. And you have to also um, be able to identify the characteristics of it. So again, if it's research, uh, multiple research studies, what the sample size was, things like that. Um, so we have to ask some core questions, right? What are we expected to memorize? When I was in fifth grade, you know, and I'm, and I'm memorizing all 50 states, pretty pointless, right? <laughs> Didn't have to do that. So what are we expected to memorize? We have to why do we have to do that? Why do we have to know um, all all of the presidents in the order? I mean, maybe it's important to understand, you know, presidents and political philosophies and things like that for to kind of see how things evolved over time as a society. I can see value certainly in that. But for someone to just, you know, quiz you on who was the 21st president, who was the 29th president, who was a president from, you know, 1931 to, I mean, it's like, okay, like I can look that up. Um so it's those type of things um, that get more, it's like trivia type information, which gives you a surface appearance of seeming intelligent and smart, but not really, right? It's like a Dunning-Kruger effect is what's portrayed. Um, so again, I appreciate you following this show. I appreciate everybody that follows my work, reads reads my publications, listens to my podcast, because you're an intellectual audience. This stuff resonates with you. You put it into practice then in your everyday life. People are like, hey, um, Chet, you know, Chet is using the term I observed. And I like that because that seems really grounded. Chet's really dialed in. And, you know, this face validity thing uh, Brian's been talking about more, you know, with us, that makes that makes sense. I'm going to start doing that. So, you know, you're the type of people that go out and then you – People admire you. They respect you for, you know, your your intellectual prowess and they want to be like you. So I appreciate that. Um, so let's keep looking here. Rather, so cognitive offloading, rather than attempt to mentally store and manipulate all irrelevant details about a situation with in our brains, also known as actors, like people are known as actors. So um we physically store and manipulate those details out in the world in the very situation itself. Okay, again, this is where flip charts, things like that come into play, the AEDs, thing, stuff like that. In practice, cognitive offloading replaces memorizing maps, state capitals, names of former presidents. Instead, you need to know where this information is stored and how to access it. So there's three things you really need to be very good at to be a good cognitive offloader. Okay, you need to know how to query information. Okay. Basically, where can I go to get this information? If I am going to do a web search, what am I going to put in for my search terms, right? <laughs> Very important. Um, and, and what sources am I going to use? Is it going to be media, other you know, articles, things like that? Um, so you understand how to query. And if it's not only that, it's it, part of that comes into face validity. So it's also contacting your face validity network. What are you seeing? Contacting them as member checks. Here's what I observe about this. Here's what I've read. What have you observed? What have you read? 
Um, what do you think then? So that all comes into how to query, how to access um, the information. So you can know how to put the study together, but again, are you using an internet browser? Are you using that in combination with calling some friends, with doing you know like a Skype chat with them or doing emails, whatever, but how you're accessing that information. And then the big thing is how to apply it because you're gonna get, it's ubiquitous. You're gonna get a lot of responses on things. So how do you narrow it down and then how do you apply it to your context and situation? So very important, how to query it, how to access it, how to apply it. So despite much research, the mechanisms that trigger cognitive offloading are not well understood at present. So this is something we actually don't know a lot about how this works, cognitive offloading for people. We know that it's there, we just don't know exactly how it works, how people decide, oh, I'm gonna put down a note for this. I'm gonna write a reminder, I'm gonna put this in my calendar. And the part of this that gets tricky with researchers is when they research this, they have to be really passive in, in kind of observing how people do this because if they put stuff out there and say, well, here's a planner, here's a calendar, whatever, people will kind of innately then interact with those things if you provide them. You're kind of influencing their behaviors, I guess kind of leading the witness a little bit. So this is really, um, it's an area that's wide open for study. And I, I wrote an article about this, which I didn't publish, I wrote an article a couple of years ago, and that's actually how I decided to do this podcast because I found the article because my Google Drive is almost full and I have to start thinning that out. I'm like, oh, I don't know why I never submitted that one. I, I, I think it was a journal that I said, here's an idea I've had for an article, and they said, go ahead and write it, and then for some reason I never submitted it. But um, but yeah, this whole cognitive offloading, we don't really know how, how this works, how people trigger these things. And um, this is really important, especially in, in the work that I do in school safety, how do people decide what to put on a flip chart versus what to commit to memory and how do they practice also with this flip chart and their own discretion and ability to adapt things in this in, in the moment. But um, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting area. You can probably look throughout your whole day of how things are cognitively offloaded out of your whole week, out of, of you, what your friends do, what your family does. Um, cognitive offloading is, is um, something that's a big area of study for dementia, uh, people with cognitive loss due to dementia or tra traumatic brain injury, but you know, usually elderly population people, um, Alzheimer's. Um, so cognitive offloading is that in, if you can remember to get to this, this book that has you know, pictures of, of people and you know, this is my son or daughter, here's, here's the steps that I have to do, um, cognitive offloading that I, I, I need to remember yeah, my pills are in an, an envelope and they're marked with every day, but I have to remember where the pills are. They're uh, in a counter, they're they're in a, uh, on a shelf in a counter and they're marked pills or something like that. So those are all cognitive offloading areas that have been studied and, and more and more studied, but specifically more or less to people with dementia, cognitive deterioration, uh, post-traumatic brain injury, things like that. But if we're talking about, you know, like... Um, for example, myself, you know, where I I don't have um, don't have those those things. Um, how am I using cognitive offloading just to be very efficient? I guess in in my day, and not occupying my mind with things. You know, like when is my next um, you know doctor's appointment or dentist appointment or something like that, that that is cognitively offloaded onto a schedule or again how to take care of winterizing my lawn more because I do it one time a year and I want to make sure that I don't miss any of the steps. 
So again, this is it's a hard area to study. Um, people create reminders for these delayed intentions, like, uh, yeah, I'm, you know, I, I intend to do this. I intend to go, um, you know, shopping on Friday, and here's the things that I have to to get or whatever. Um, but again, they they do these things with explicitly um, being told that they have to to do them. So it's hard to observe and measure. Um, in everyday life, how people spontaneously generate, again, these offloading strategies. People tend to offload more in a condition they perceive as being more difficult. Okay, so this is if they perceive it as being more difficult. Um, if they're thinking, you know, oh my goodness, this is, it's going to be really hard to, yeah, to, to do these steps of putting this podcast together. Or I remember once it was a, um, a nurse who would use... Uh, would test hearing, so she would she would you know set up the piece of of equipment. I forget what the the name for it was um, at this time, but but there were like twenty two steps, and the first one was like take it out of the case, do this, do this, and she did this you know all the t- the time. She just perceived this as a very difficult, finite, per- precise task that she she probably did two hundred times a year in testing kids' hearing um, and, and getting audiograms and stuff like that. But she always followed these steps. And the thing is, she didn't need to follow the steps. She already knew them. She committed to memory. Um, but it was one of these things. She just perceived this as being a very difficult, complex task. So it's the thing of, you know, we can psych ourselves out sometimes, too, and thinking something is very difficult. We're not going to be able to figure it out. Matt, I kind of got into that myself with um, Photoshop. You know, Photoshop, I bought the book on the tutorials that, hey, I would just out offload to the tutorials which have been put together, which actually that wasn't that easy. Um, they have the guides on the right-hand side of the screen that you can click on and it'll, you know, step you through some stuff. But it's to the point of I perceive this as more difficult and I just had to get in there and actually had to do it and become familiar with it. And then I started to learn it where I didn't have to offload, which was actually taking me a lot of time to, like, kind of go through this catalog of pages and documents to figure out, oh, yeah, here's how to take out a background of an image. I just needed to do that enough where I put that into my memory. I'm not cognitive offloading that anymore because I'm using that more frequently. Although to me, it was still a pretty difficult task. And if I do need to go out and and get a refresher on some of that, I know how to do that. But the thing is, if we perceive that things are going to be difficult, that we're going to have a hard time understanding them, where it'd be politics or um our own fitness, you know, nutrition, things like this, whatever it could be, if we perceive it's going to be difficult, um, that there's going to be the experts that know how to do it, they're going to override what we know. Um, we just kind of check out and we say, yeah, we're just we're just going to offload that. Like if I need to know anything about the coronavirus, I'm just going to watch this video. I'm going to go to our local news and see what they have to say. I'm gonna I'm gonna do these things um, instead of doing your own research. Yeah, if I'm I'm a bicyclist, I love biking, but you know if I want to learn more about fitness and biking and what to eat and how to to train, um, instead of learning that, instead of you know doing my own research on it, I'm just gonna find some blog posts on that. So you know because it's a lot to like try to memorize and understand calories and heart rate and stuff. And, and people psych themselves out. I mean, we're smart people. We can figure a lot of this out. So the fact is, are we taking our internal hard drive, our brain, and starting to push a lot of stuff to the external hard drive? And there's a lot of space up here that should be just occupied. There's This is always a step away when we get to this external hard drive. We want to keep it in our minds as as much as possible for what, for what we can do. I mean, we don't want to rely on these external systems, over-rely on these external systems. Um, 
what cognitive look um, loading looks like for school safety. So again, I for school safety, hey, it's the flip charts. Um, it's you know here's uh, all of the tabs. Here's the nine steps to do for whatever happens. Uh, the problem is if people don't interact with that, if they don't practice with the flip charts, if they don't practice with tabletops, um, periodic simulations and things like that in a responsible manner, that the thought is I'll just go to this and it will tell me what to do. Kind of like the AED if someone's having a heart attack. And it's not that way during a crisis situation usually. You're not going to have the steps one, two, three, four, five, all the way down to whatever. Um, so it's it's these times when people are, are trying to match the steps up with the disaster that's unfolding around them. The situation context isn't matching the steps. So um, just to think that you're going to access this, it's instantly going to make sense to you, all of the terms, all of the steps, it's, it's not realistic. So that's there's another thing called plan in a can. Or basically, again, these are these one-size-fits-all safety plans. Um, crisis response plans. So if this happens, tornado, flood, whatever, you just follow this and you'll be fine. And it, again, it doesn't work that way. And we've seen more of these evolve to what is known now as app, A-P-P, app in a can. Phone app. Hey, I'll just go to my phone app and I will know what to do if whatever happens. I'll just follow the steps. And again, um, there needs to be a bridge there for that to work, first of all, where you're familiar with that app, you're familiar with your own situation, uh, inventorying your own options unique to your context, um, and that you know you can make sense of that. The thing is, it's like going over, you've never used, a lot of people never use these apps, they never practice them once in a real life situation. Um, you know, if, if here's the thing, just think about it. If any of us could just instantly upload information, like, you know, you're on a plane and they're like, hey, can anybody, it's over the PA, does anyone here know how to fly a plane? You know, it's like, why? Oh my goodness. Like, you know, if anybody could just come into the, the cockpit of a plane, sit down and have a flip chart on how to land a plane, that'd be great, right? But that's just not the way that it works. There's no way that that could happen. There'd be too much unfamiliar terminology, unfamiliar processes. We wouldn't be able to do it. It'd be a miracle if anyone unfamiliar with flying a plane would just be able to, um, you know, take take that information, put it into practice, right? But that's where we kind of get with some of this cogn cognitive offloading. So it's very important what you do, um, any situations you're in where, you know, these things are kind of offloaded, that you're aware, yeah, maybe I need to know a little bit more about this ahead of time or in your job, or I'm going to look a little, I'm going to look some of this up. I need to know, you know, more about this because during a time of crisis, I'm not necessarily going to, you know, go to this flip chart to, to get me through. And again, what does this have to do with face validity, authentic information that you're observing, your, your whole network around you, your member checks? A must read for parents, teachers, and taxpayers. Dr. David Perodin has written the most honest book about the $3 billion school safety industrial complex. Attorney James Sibley proclaims, a brave demonstration of speaking truth to power, School of Errors rips the lid off the billion dollar school safety industry. Using real world examples of successful responses in desperate situations, David contrasts the expensive window dressings pitched to panic parents with the inexpensive and effective approaches proven to actually work. 
Read this book before you let your school waste another precious dollar on meaningless safety theater. Buy the international bestseller, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America, now at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. Moreover, cognitive offloading can be expected to be highly idiosyncratic. People might have preferences for certain types of reminders or technical aids. In addition, the chosen reminder type is likely task or situation specific. So some people just might have a certain thing that they go to. I always use post-it notes. Post-it notes, that's my thing. I put them on the fridge. I put them on the door of my car or whatever. I'm not, I don't do that, but someone could say that. I'm a post-it note type person. That's what I do. Other person, another person might you know, just put the calendar all in their phone. Other people could do whatever. So it's one of these things where people get used to a certain way to do things, and they just that is their system. So systems across people aren't even consistent. These offloading systems, these offloading practices to think that everybody's going to engage in things the same way. So when I was in college, my, I think, second year in college, I took a one-credit class, and it was about study strategies. It was a phenomenal class. It, it, the instructor, um, you know, had us practice. Here's ways to take notes. Here's different ways to use a note card, assemble information on a note card, keywords. Here's write it by hand because you're more likely to re remember it. Here's you know, little drawings that you can do. Just all of these different techniques that people use to offload information, um, cognitive offloading. It was, and again, that, that was a phenomenal class. I, I should be required for everybody. We should be teaching that to you know, elementary, middle, high school kids, all of all of these strategies. I mean, do we have a class where we teach people, um, it, whether it be adults or, you know, whatever, but teach people how to search for things, how to evaluate what they're finding, whether it be internet or also face validity. You know, people are telling you a lot of, I think, I think is different than I observed. So, you know, again, understanding these, these strategies for cognitive offloading, um, now, you know, I'm more in the camp of, I think, you know, I'll always be able to get to my phone to get my schedule and, and things like that. So it, you know, I always have access to a calculator. Um, so there are some things like I'm just, I'm, I'm just pretty much like, you know, counting on, but again, the way to organize, um, notes and to streamline information, the, the whole process that went into that, there's, it, there's value in learning how to do that. Um, so here, four ways to increase your mental functioning by mastering cognitive offloading. Four ways. The first is, one, understand the probability of having to deal with a situation. If it's infrequent, if it's improbable, then um, opt for cognitive offloading. Okay? Uh, this is where in a school, you know, if it is, here's what to do during um, a tornado warning or a severe, you know, storm warning. Well, when you're going to have have some lead time into a severe storm, like it's just not going to hit, you're going to have some, you know, lead up to that, some, some warnings. But, um, you know, hey, it is once a spring, right, that we have a tornado warning while school is still in session. So yes, we have our drills and things, but to actually go through, here's where our area is. Um, it, some of those types of things, I can grab the flip chart here are the steps to that. That's a good thing. So if it's infrequent, opt for cognitive offloading because also you're probably not going to remember all of those steps, right? You're not going to remember. That's that's why, you know, situations happen like a what, nuclear 
you know, plants and things like that, they, they go through because it's very infrequent. So they go through step by step by step by step because someone isn't going to remember that. It's not something you're dealing with on a daily basis. Um, also, I talked about it a little bit. If you are using uh, visuals, handwritten notes, um, that that's a terrific way to increase the um, access of information once it's been offloaded. If you've written something down, you see your own handwriting, um, it generally improves your understanding of material because um, you've, it's a deeper cognitive process when you're, when you're writing it instead of typing it. You have to be more streamlined. Um, for example, college students who are taking longhand notes were forced to be more selective than students who are typing things out. Because students who are typing things out would type things kind of verbatim, just what they were hearing. If you're writing notes out, you have to be more selective in the information. can't write as fast as you can type. So a study found that uh, people who doodle, right, put little drawings, things like that on their notes, um, they remember 29% more of the information presented them than people that don't doodle. So again, doing, you know, drawings and things like that. I have that in that, that college course. It's very, very relevant. So um, I do a lot of my stuff in handwritten notes, um, again, for recall. So cognitive offloading, putting it into handwritten notes. Number two, so again, we're talking four ways to increase your mental functioning by mastering cognitive offloading. Number two, authentic complexity of the task. Understand the authentic complexity of the task. How difficult is this, okay? Don't offload things that you need to, um, to memorize. Remember I talked about the, the school nurse who was uh, measuring hearing, um, the machine that would, would determine audiograms, you know, little beeps in the ears. And this is something she had to do like 200 times a year with students. And yet she went through that, you know, the, the very rote sequence of here's step one, step two, step three, where she already had that down. Um, but so, you know, in, in those cases, again, understand the authentic complex, complexity of a task. Um, you know, in my, in my podcast, too, I offload certain things. Like the more I do podcasts, I have folders set up. So I'm like, here's all the intro sounds. Here's the intro video graphics that I use. Um, those things are all put into folders. I've offloaded those. So, um, you know, because that to me simplifies the task. I know how complex that, that task is. I know what goes into that. So it saves me time. I offload it into those folders. Um, but also, so you understand authentically how complex a task is. And I think the flip side of this is that you don't let it flip freaky out, right? Oh my God, I'll never be able to do this. This is too hard. I can't learn this. I can't learn this you know, program or, or whatever. It's like, no, you know, you have to, you have to engage with it. You have to try it, um, spend some time with it. Authentic complexity of a task. You know, it's like if I'm replacing the headlight on my car, um, fixing the chain on my bike, doing things like that. Um, we're, we know we're more likely to just offload that, have somebody else do it or just say it's too, it's too difficult. We're, we're becoming more that way because we're doing that also with information with the internet. I'm just going to go to the internet to try to find, um, you know, some information on this. That's different. I want to note that that's different than if you're using the internet as a tool so you can watch some tutorial videos, DIY on, okay, here's how to change the headlight on my car. Um, number three, practice how to search for information. Okay, talked about this. We make mistakes when we get comfortable in our metacognition or basically how we think. We don't analyze how we think. Am, am I biased about this? Am I thinking that, um, you know, I'm going to 
I, I know what to search for. I know what's out there, but maybe I don't. Maybe there's other s- sources besides, you know, Jern and some of the ones that I use that really have good information. And I'm sure there are. So I need to be open to that. Um, so put hubris aside, be empirical, get information. And again, you will excel and others around you will see that in you. And that will be a very admirable characteristic. Dif- uh, have Know the difference between media sources and more reliable sources. Again, the local media, um, your, your you know, national news, those things. To me, that's uh, really a grain of a big grain of salt, many grains of salt. Um, I kind of just take those to understand w- where the general vibe is in the media, but not as authentic information. Um, authentic information to me needs to be researched. Or if it's more rapidly developing velocity of information, um, like what was happening in the middle of March with the coronavirus, then I need to get my face validity network going, the people that say I observed, um, and I need to be checking with them in their areas. Hey, what are you observing? Use their that member check network to really get reliable information, as reliable as I can get. So, um, but yeah, practice how to search for information. Don't be lazy and, and just type in something and go with the first thing that shows up on the, the search. Um, so the, uh, the fourth point here in four ways to increase your mental um, functioning by mastering cognitive offload. And the fourth is if the Dunning-Kruger effect is in play, recognize this. We talked about it on a previous podcast, Dunning-Kruger. Um, if it's in play, people will be horribly uh, impacted. They're, they're, so cognitive, um, so Dunning-Kruger basically means that people vastly overestimate um, how equipped they are to handle something, right? They're like, oh, I can I can handle this situation, no problem. And they try to do it and they, they fail horribly. And they never see that it was their fault that something went wrong. Oh, I can... I can rewire my house. Sure, I can do that. I know how to do that, and they've never done it before. Um, so Dunning-Kruger, when those people, they're not going to ever offload <laughs> because they'll just think, I'll, I'll know how to solve this. Yeah, if I have to sit in, in the pilot seat and land a plane, I'll know how to do it. I'll figure it out. My, I'm, I'm a smart person. And, and we have a lot of people out there who suffer from Dunning-Kruger. They get a little bit of information or they get information from one media channel on the news and they're convinced that they're an expert on a certain topic. You know, the relations between South Korea and North Korea and, you know, the United States and all of this. Oh, yeah, because I, I get, you know, my information from this news source. So Dunning-Kruger, um, people and also, I think for yourself, if you're not cognitively offloading something um you know, like that's that's com- complex. You're just thinking, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna figure this out, right? Um, yeah, my car is not working. I'll just open up the hood, you know, flip the hood up, and and I'll just work on it until it w- starts. Uh, it's just not that way. It's not intuitive. You're not gonna just work around a car engine until things just be. Your brain looks and things become apparent. You just naturally figure out how to fix things. Um, so again, people who think their intelligence will rise to the occasion to solve anything. So it's important to recognize these people um, just in general, in and then also you know whether the, in politics, local politics, state politics, um, and then people you know relatives, family, friends, 
who succumb to the Dunning-Kruger effect because those people will not engage in um, cognitive offloading. They're not the people who are going to say, yeah, let me, hand me the directions so I can go through this. I'm not quite sure how this, this works. I might have missed a step. Um, these are people who are not going to be writing down appointments, you know, writing down other things, getting information on how to how to do things, right? Oh, I know how to to yeah build this wall, you know, in my garage. I know how to do this this you know drywalling or you know whatever it is, right? Um, they're going to just be have hubris and just be like I, I'm just plow through that stuff. Those are people. You, you know, you probably have to interact with at some point, but you have to be very careful on how you're plugging them into any situations where their information is influencing that situation. Because, you know, I don't want to get up there, again, think of that pilot, you know, you're, you're two people and I get up there, somebody else, and I'm like, oh, so you've flown before. They're like, oh, no, I've never flown. But like, I know I can figure this out. I'd be like, what? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know how you can do that. So, but we have some of those people who are impacted by Dunning-Kruger. So a few things here in the close of the Safety Doc podcast, episode 136, Cognitive Offloading. What is it? Um, again, it is storing information out into your environment. Easy way to think about that, like putting things on a, on a flip chart, putting a list of you know steps on how to do something that you don't do very frequently, winterize a lawnmower. Um, some of this is just innately being built into our systems right now. Again, we talked about AEDs, somebody has a heart attack, you get out the AED and it steps you through what to do. Do this, do this, and there's little lights and guides and you know voice and stuff like that. Our cars are cognitively offloading a lot, you know, different things like lane assist, stuff like that, radar, tell you what's in back of you and things like that. So um, I always get a kick out of those commercials where someone's kind of like not paying attention, they're backing out of their driveway and then the you know, beep, 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 and it throws on the brakes. They almost hit someone. It's like, whoa. And I'm like, well, yeah, like you should be paying attention. Like just because you have this feature on your car, just because it's cognitively offloaded into the technology of the vehicle, isn't it, it, it is not an excuse for you to be a careless driver. <laughs> the vehicle isn't going to just do all of this stuff for you. You know, those things are so misleading, those those commercials. But, but yeah, so cognitive offloading, um, Understanding how to do it, and and that we're we're doing this more, right? But if we're if we're relying on the internet, if we have more people not even kind of trying to access things in their brain, trying to problem solve something on their own, they're they're basically just following the footsteps of what somebody else did or multiple people did. And again, the the internet is not an encyclopedia; it's not curated. It hasn't had editors, proofreaders go through it. Um, it's information that. You know, it's it's going to be very hit and miss. You have to be a very astute consumer of the information, which a lot of people aren't. So, again, you know, that, that is a very dangerous part of cognitive offloading. Totes, malotes, dog. Thanks, Noob Noob. This guy gets it. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perotin. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices 
in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.